No, I was going to say, I thought, yeah. Well, okay. I remember when you were a little kid, you know, you get to this time of day, and it's like, I'll take a corner of the floor, get your little pillow. Roll up your pillow. Oddly enough, when you were a kid, you didn't like that. Now it's like, it's that sounds, nice. sounds fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is going to be probably a fairly short discussion since most of it is repeated three times. Oh. Two portions, but same content mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the, the thing that stood out to me this week, one of the things that's really kind of cool, is um, has to do with the giving of all the stuff. And I thought that I thought it was really neat. I guess everyone in this room already, kind of already knows, but um, I thought it was really cool. And I heard that Sophia had donated some of her hair to yes. Box of Love. What did you give it to? Things that need help. That's so great, Sophia. That's so sweet. Yay. Yay. Did it make you feel good to give you your hair? Yeah, it does feel very good to give. You know, the thing about the children of Israel, they actually gave so much, they had to tell them to stop giving. Which happened at every church in Charlotte. Never. Never. Right. They actually, they kept bringing more and more stuff, and finally they say, that's it, we, we have too much, you have to stop giving. Because it felt so good to give. But one of the things I think is amazing when you read this, this, this portion, as you look at the things that they're giving, it's like, um, we think, I think for myself, we think of giving, you know, offerings, you always see a little silver plate, and coins and dollar bills and whatnot, or checks. Um, and the thing about money is that like money, it represents time, which can't be get, gotten back. But money isn't it, there's always more money. You know, you give money and there's more money later. And so I feel like it's a little less painful to give up money um, in some ways. But the objects that these people are giving up, it's like, this is it. This is their, he's giving away his, his you know, gemstone or his, their, their acacia wood. And where are they gonna find that just lying around again? You know, and it's like gold and, and precious metals and other types of uh, cloth and fabric. And it's like, it's very difficult to get the stuff. Uh, we don't, they don't have supermarkets and, and Amazon where they can order the stuff and have it shipped. Um, it takes a lot of time sometimes to get it. It's kind of like Sophia's hair now. It's somebody else's hair, and you have to wait until it comes back. Um, it takes patience. Oh, look, speaking of Amazon. I'm just looking to see what we got. Um, but one of the things about the uh, <laughs> one of the things about gift giving, though, is, I mean, the, the giving that they were making is that um, there wasn't an easy replacement for it. And I feel like that makes it all the more precious that they were so excited to give to the work for the tabernacle that they gave up things that they could never get back. It wasn't like they gave something up. It's like, well, I'll buy another one later. Or this is my best one. It was like it was their only one. You know, they, here is thy gold, and here's my silver, and here's whatever. So I thought that was really impressive of the people of Israel. I put a lot of work into it. Yes, sir. One of the things this morning in like the Torah kids that we listened to from Birth to Design, they were pointing out how that idea sort of relates to Messiah. And he was re- reiterating that story about uh, Yehuda Halevi that goes in, uh, to the tomb of uh, Shimon Bar Yochai and uh, Eliyahu's on outside and the first question oh, yeah. he asked him is like where's Messiah and he's like oh he's by the lepers you know you gotta go find him finds Messiah and says when are you coming back and he says today yeah. and then he, he's like oh great alright well so he hightails high it back to Jerusalem because Messiah's coming back today but he didn't come back that day it was a day's journey but he's like oh he, he, he lied he didn't come back so he come, comes back to Eliyahu and says what, what, why did Messiah lie to me? Like he said, he was coming back to me. He's like, well, he was quoting the verse from Psalms that says, today, if you obey. Mm. And the idea in Judaism was reiterated several times when we were in Israel from different people that it's like, 
we have to work for Messiah. Like, we, we need to do a lot of things before Messiah comes back. And I was thinking about that in terms of the, this gift-giving, too, because it's like the moment that the children of Israel were the most unified, the most spiritual, the most obedient, was the moment where they participated in what God was giving them, which was his presence after the Mishkan was complete. And I've never, I guess, really thought about how that relates to Messiah, because I think a lot of times in the church, you, you think about Messiah as just like, we don't have to do anything for him. We just have to wait. Like, right. we, whenever he comes, he comes. Like, we have nothing like to do with that. The less you do, the better. Then. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like we, and we have no control over that whatsoever. We have nothing to do with it. So we're just kind of waiting around. And in, when you have that perspective, I think you don't cherish it as much. You don't appreciate it as much. And you definitely don't connect with the goal as much. And the goal in this case is Messiah. So it's like the more that we can relate our mitzvot keeping and our doing of the Torah to the bringing back of Messiah as a lot of the Orthodox do, like the more connected we are to it, similar to how these people were contributing to the uh, the building of the Mishkan. And they were, yeah, you're building, you're building a kingdom, so to speak. You know, you're, you're laying the groundwork for when Mashiach comes. Um, we can talk about more that more later. We talk about Ezekiel, but yeah, I think it's also interesting when you look at the um, you look at this. This is that they came willingly. And that's another big deal. Like their their hearts were open, um, and it's contrasted to the story where they get the, the the same some of the same jewelry is used for the golden calf. You remember that? You know the earrings and all that stuff. And it says uh, the, the language they use is almost more like forcefully, like they like tore them out and gave them. You know, like here you can have it, and then Aaron takes it and whatever else. But then in the in this in this story, it's 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 with a open heart. It, they they want to, and it's not just the men telling you know, okay, family. This is what we're doing. It's like everyone is eager, and even to the story of the the uh, women giving up their uh, mirrors in exchange for the to put towards the uh, the, the um, wash bin. Um, and that's just really really neat to see that it was this group desire to do stuff. Yes, sir. Well, I mean, part of the thing about giving though is, and we and and this is where offerings have maybe have led us to the wrong conclusion about its purpose for giving is um, we need to give like God gives. And God gives without any, any expectation of, and God knows everything, but without any expectation of a return. If you look at the world, he feeds the righteous and the unrighteous. And the unrighteous vastly outnumber the righteous. Mm. And he feeds them expecting nothing in return. Mm-hmm. And when you, it's kind of like uh, holy books. Um, when we touch holy books, they make the hands unclean, which is completely opposite from our perspective. They make the hands unclean. In other words, it can't be used for common things. In other words, my hands now can't be used for common things. They need to be washed first. Well, it's exactly opposite when you look at it. And in the same way, when the people gave, it wasn't so that they could see an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, an example would be it's like I give some earrings, and I could look at I could look at the you know the the crown on the, on the high priest and go, there's my earring. Well, no, actually, you can't see your earring. It, it, it didn't go to that, right? <laughs> who would ever, of men, who would ever work for an enterprise? We do. But who would ever want to work for an enterprise where the outcome was not something that you could contribute to? In other words, you have to give it all, but you don't get any, you don't even get the satisfaction knowing that it was for a greater good. True. So the people are not giving for a greater good. Right? They're not saying, hey, look, we can give this because God wants it and it's going to build this wonderful tabernacle. That's not why they gave it. 
That's the whole point. They didn't give it for that reason. They gave it, this is why they had to be told to stop. Because otherwise they wouldn't have to have been told to stop. Because they could see that it's accomplished its purpose. Hmm. We only give as far as it, as it goes. We only give, you know, generally people only give for the need. to the point to satisfy need or, you know, to have the satisfaction of having contributed. I contributed. See, so I can go see the building. I helped build that building, right? And this is what the world accuses believers of. They believe they accuse us of being ultimately very selfish. We all get something for it, you know, the satisfaction of knowing that I've done something good, all of that. This is a different kind of giving. This is God's kind of giving, which means that you give it not only in not only because without knowing if it'll have an outcome, but knowing that the outcome is will be invisible to you. You'll have no participation. Because what happens? Do they go in and they see the Ark of the Covenant? No. They get nothing out of it. And even if we know ultimately they did, we all do. But that's not why they gave it. This is a totally this this kind of giving is un is unknown to human beings in general terms. It just it doesn't happen. Hmm. Giving because God asked for it. Without any knowledge of any benefit for you at all. That's the key. That's the way God gives. Uh, just to go back to that was awesome. Um, to go back to what uh, Gregory was saying, who may show up at some point. Second um, Peter three um, says that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Mm. Not just waiting for it. Mm. We're waiting for and hastening the day of God, and I think that's. You know what uh, what he and Morgan perceived in in the land was they're, they're just there's no way around for Messiah. They're hastening the coming of Messiah and doing things that will will bring him sooner than later. Mm-hmm. And it, I think perhaps because it only is in the back end of the apostolic scriptures, as as normal non-Jews, we we tend to overlook that mm-hmm. and recognize that our actions can affect. Yeah, and then um, thinking about even talking about eternity and whatnot, they so the, this portion starts with Shabbat and then talks about the tabernacle, and um, of course there's one interpretation of that is that the tabernacle tells you what you're not supposed to do on Shabbat, which is it might be true, but then the other element that I think that is really kind of cool here is what is Shabbat? Shabbat is a place in time, Amen. and what is the tabernacle? It is a place in space. And they're kind of like, they're kind of parallel here. So Shabbat becomes a place that's holy, that's set apart for God, a place in time, a carved out space. And it's a space, what's cool is like the tabernacle, it's a space that in a way you create. God gives you all of the material for it. God's the side of day of the week. But the, the but Shabbat itself only be, is treated, like in a way you only experience Shabbat if you make Shabbat. One of the things that's always kind of weird is that, um, is that they'll talk about um, to do Shabbat. Well, the word do in Hebrew is the same word for make. You make Shabbat, which is always a funny, odd way of saying it because, of course, you also make other things which you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. So it's kind of this, it's like this weird double use of the same word where, on the one hand, you, by ceasing, by stopping to do stuff, you are making a space of rest. And mm-hmm. in that sense, this, is a, this day is a tabernacle in time in which we meet with God and we accomplish that by making it a holy day of rest. Mm-hmm. Abraham Joshua Hush. 
Yeah, right. The Shabbat, the Shabbat book. Is it just called the Shabbat? The Sabbath. The Sabbath, that's right. Although the Shabbat is going to be an, a, the opposite of a place of home. I mean, so in the same way the tabernacle right. is eternal, right. Shabbat being eternal uh, is only because our experience is punctual. Right. Without, without, without the, con, the confinement of time, of the time. Yeah. without the confinement of time, it'll be eternal. And then we discover, wow, the eternal, physical and the eternal as we see it today, time are one and the same. Well, it's interesting that, like, in the same way, Shabbat becomes the norm, right. so to speak. It becomes everything. But that's exactly what happens at the tabernacle. It, ha- it specifically notes that there is no temple in the world to come because everything is, is the holy. Temple. Everything is we the temple. We won't have to wash our hands until yeah. after we see the, and touch the holy. Because all of a sudden, instead of it being a place you have to set aside, now everything is set aside for God, which is quite cool and very special. And of course, we also get the um, my, one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible is Bezalel. Mm-hmm. Really amazing how he's able to make all this stuff, and it's really quite phenomenal when you look at. Um, of course, they, we go through all of this um, portion up until now. Moses gets the list of all the different things to make, and then it goes through and it lists all the things again. Um, and it's so impressive to me that Bezalel makes all of it. Like, like it doesn't cut any corners. We don't end up with. And he tried to make the, the yeah. cherubim and almost succeeded, you know. And he got half of one, you know, and that was great. Um, but that he actually manages to do it exactly the way that God had said. And it's so cool that he was given that ability, um, that sense of idea. Like uh, it says in um, Paul quotes in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, he, he says that God does not test us beyond what we are able. Well, with every temptation, give us a way of escape. It's like God only assigns tasks he knows you can do. So he gives Bezalel this supernatural capacity to make the Mishkan, which he then does. I mean, it, it sounds hokey, but for those who have ever, you know, grew up in the, in the 60s with Star Trek, <laughs> at some point... Or grew up after the 60s, but watched Star Trek. Right. <laughs> at some point, aliens steal Spock's brain. Oh. You remember? And Dr. McCoy is imbued with knowledge from the aliens in order to put his brain back in. Oh. And about three quarters through the procedure, it wears off. And he's like, what am I doing? Look at all the nerves and endings and I, I, I can't, and Spock has to walk him through it while he's working on his own brain. I mean, it's <laughs> it, the idea that God would imbue a man with abilities to do something far beyond his capacity is is right there in that. I mean, it's, it's just a, a wonderful example of this guy might have been good at this, but he wasn't that good, and God made him that good. Right, and a holy God as well. And but well, they given the ability to teach, they're training other people how to do it. Right. And, but it's so cool to me that like I feel like this really emphasizes that whole idea of um, your father-in-law is very fond of the verse that says that God gives us the ability to make wealth. Yeah. And it's like I really see this as true with Betzalel, as so true for us. It's like the skills and the talents that we have are gifts. They don't come from us. Um, even like the pagans, oh, uh, Greeks and whatnot, saw the idea of the, the muse, this idea that somehow people have what feels like a supernatural ability to do things. Why is he able to do that really well, but this person can't? Why does this person find it so easy to learn this new skill, and this person has no idea what's going on? And they, but at the same time, that they, they all work together and they're able to do different things. And, and with Betzalel, you know, God gives him this specific task 
but really he's done that for everybody. He gives us all certain skills and capabilities, and, and it's just a matter of finding a way to, to use that and to serve God with it. With Bethsalel, it was easy. He said, here's what you're going to do, and he laid it all out. But it's amazing that Bethsalel can do everything. I mean, if you look at his list, like, I can think of some, you know, I've, I've been to places, you know, they're making blowing glass. Or Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're making, you know, they're making pottery. They're making, you the know, The weaver amazing with the yeah, Exactly. You know, it's like you, you go to these places, especially nowadays, one of the new one of the new things is to do it the old way. And so you'll find these places like, we do it from scratch. We do it for like the way that they made it 150 years ago. And of course, it's amazing. You're watching them like, it takes 19 hours to make, you know, one wow. piece of clothes or, or whatever, of, you know. A lump of clay and she takes a stick and and now yeah. it's a vase. And you're like, how did that How did they do that? And it's amazing to think that Betzalel could do all of those things. Like if you look at the list of tasks that, that God gives Betzalel, he has to be an embroiderer. He has to work with gold. He has to work with wood. He has to, it's like. This is supernatural. There's no other way to explain it. There's no way that one person would seem to be that good at all of that. Um, and we went to see the home of Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. Of course, the guy was brilliant, and he does all of this ridiculous amount of stuff. But this is actually even more impressive. He didn't just write down the ideas. He actually built them all. Well, if tradition is true and he was the youngest, they say, right. that's even more of Well, and if you do the genealogical, genealogical research, it definitely seems to imply that the tradition is true. So tradition holds that he's 13. When he does all this. Well, I think the phrase is Da Vinci is Betzalel if you're willing to accept it. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. But the funny thing about it, though, is Betzalel's grandfather is Hur, which we do remember from a previous story that hangs out with Aaron, Aaron and Hur on the mountain, you know, with the, they're fighting Amalek and they hold up Moses' arms. So if Hur is old, is, is still alive at that point and seems to be spry enough at least to hold up Moses' arms all day, um, then that would seem to indicate to his grandson now is the one building the Mishkan. But this is only, as you pointed out earlier, like six months after that experience. That's right. So Hur is, um, if his grandson's the one building the Mishkan, then the odds are very high that he actually is very young. Um, also, it's kind of a cool, weird uh, tacoon here. So tradition holds that when they build, the reason why Aaron panics and makes the golden calf is he's trying very hard to prevent conflict. Tradition holds the reason why he's motivated so strongly is that they kill Hur. That Hur tries to stop them from building the golden calf, and the people and the, the people of the whichever people they were, probably the Gentiles are with them, let's be honest. They are over, you know, they're so eager and so distraught that Moses doesn't come back that they you know reject Hur's uh, um, leadership and they end up killing him. And so, of course, now Aaron realizes this is getting way out of hand, and he's trying to just bring peace, because that's his thing. Um, so this is kind of a cool tacoon, that the, his grandfather died trying to stop them from making the golden calf, which in a way, the tabernacle is a tacoon for the golden calf, as we mentioned earlier. But then God chooses the grandson of the guy who died to try to stop the evil to build the good. Which is also very cool. Get that legacy going on. Yes, sir. Um, and along the legacy, we talk about Ezekiel makes the point to those who would say there is no family of Aaron today and there is no family of Judah today. It makes the point upon these two families. Essentially, on two, these two families have built Israel. And this is this is the example here. We have we have Levi and, and to a greater degree Aaron's Aaron's uh, descendants and uh, and we now we have uh, uh, Yehuda's descendants in the in combined not to rule the people one's a kingship one's a priesthood but actually in the in the creation and the and the use of the tabernacle mm. and the temple That's so right. when david i mean think about it mm. Mm. 
this man, Bitzalel, Bitzalel actually constructed that which no human being can see other than the high priest one day mm -hmm. a year. So he constructed these things that are to remain invisible to everyone except Aaron's descendants. Mm -hmm. So he is actually a participant. So when you look forward and you He's see from David, Judah, so then that's right. So when you look forward and you see David, descendant of this man, Bezalel, we actually can see we can actually examine and say, okay, he runs in and he eats the bread. Okay, that may be no, that may be a no-no. But wait, he actually comes from a family that actually built this. So, so it's like Bezalel is like David's like great 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 uncle. Right. Well, uncle, that's true. Yeah, not 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 a descendant, but a, but, but same but family. Certainly same family. So from the tribe of Judah, we actually have the, uh, yeah. and, and from the tribe of Levi, the two together, which is exactly what Ezekiel says, it's those two families together that establish Israel. Cool. <coughs> Very cool. Um, it's the kingship, the priesthood, and everybody else. Right. Yeah. But in this case, we actually have the kingship somehow mixed in with the priesthood. One of the uh, one of the things is we're going through all of the different stuff he makes. He makes an enormous amount of things. Um, they list them all in great detail. One of the things I thought was really interesting is there, uh, and you only catch this. I mentioned this before, and I really love this for this reason. Chabad's translation of the Hebrew oftentimes includes the things that make zero sense in English. Sometimes it's hard to read. And um, but one of the great things that's great about that is they put the Hebrew right next to it on their website, so you can read the English and then read one of those weird words and you think, what? that and if, and if you can read the Hebrew then you can just kind of pop over and go oh that's where they're getting that from isn't that cool so one of the things I noticed this week and unfortunately I can't read the exact portion here but it's in Bezalel's talking about building the um, the curtains and it says and this I thought was so weird he's making the um, I believe it's the curtain for the, the doorway the front curtain um, for the tabernacle property with the 15 cubits yeah, shoulder yeah. Something along those lines, but it's, it's the single one though. It's the single piece that goes in front, mm -hmm. and it's so funny because in the in the English it isn't. One, it, it, I mean, in, in the Hebrew, it's one object. It's the sa'ar. It's the gate. But then the Hebrew plays this funny game with the number of things mentioned. It says he makes them of this many cubits and so forth, and he made them, okay. and the the posts for them, and so it's like it's a it ends with the the hem ending. So it's like. I thought it was so interesting to me that he, instead of treating the gate as one entity, it's like God is literally counting the individual cubits of fabric as part of this process, which I thought was really cool because I think that sometimes it reminds me of um, the movie Prince of Egypt. In the, in the movie Prince of Egypt, of course, they take some liberties from the story. Uh -huh. Moses is having a moment with Yitro, feeling a bit down and overwhelmed. You know, he's been chased out of Egypt because he accidentally killed somebody. In the movie, they, they decided not to have him intentionally kill somebody, whatever. The point is, he's having a down moment, so Yitro decides to make him feel better about life and pulls out a, th a thread from a tapestry. And he's like, and if you, you're the thread, you have no idea what your purpose is in this universe. You just simply see that you're this one color and whatever. But if you could see how you fit into the fabric of like all of, all of humanity and all of time, really, you would understand that you have a very important role to play. I thought it was so cool as you're thinking about this that like God is like counting the cubits of linen in this gate as though like each one is valuable. Each one deserves its own mention. Even though it's one entity, God's not just lumping them all together. It's like it's like God can see that the individual effort that Bethsel put in and also counts each thing as having value. And I thought it was so true with, with people. We see this as well um, when God does the census and whatnot with the people of Israel. 
they're treated as like a block, you know, they're a unity. And yet, God counts them individually because each one is itself, is himself or herself, special and unique. Well, it's the two portions we're reading, by a hell, an assembly of everyone, right. and then the counting of the individual. Right. You know, take a day. Take a day. So you get them both together. So each one is part of the unity, but each one is important. Well, one thing I really like is that God is a God of details. And he's oh, yes, he is. <laughs> as, you know, you're especially, it's kind of a portion you look at it, and you think of the big picture of eternity. He sees everything. He, you know, he sees all of mankind and all the things. But when you see intimate details of how long each thing should be and, and specific details, I really appreciate that. It's, to me, a person of detail. I like knowing that he cares individually about us each detail of our lives mm -hmm. as a person and then as a family and as whatever else. Mm -hmm. um, I like that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, he, he, uh, it's like, uh, as Yeshua one. said, the... Um, Sorry, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. as, as Yeshua... Let's put that on our money. Mm -hmm. As Yeshua said about the, um, you know, he counts the number of hairs on your head. It's like he knows mm -hmm. every detail of your lives. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, we definitely get the sense that God is, is God about detail here, which I think it, to me it also kind of stands out. It's like this was really important to spend this much time talking about it. Well, I've been reading through uh, some of the, Paul's writings, and I'm, I'm actually in Hebrews now, and talking about how it is the picture of what is in the world to come. Hmm. And, and that it had to be specific because it wasn't just something that was going to be used on earth. But it was something that was going to be an eternal, and so God had to make it very specific because it was. It had to be exactly. The had same. to be exactly. Um, right, and it, yeah, it's one of those interesting things, of course, that God doesn't just have them build it, and that's the end of it. But this was intended to be, to last for, well, really, human history. God, uh, David, is it able to? When Solomon builds the temple, he recognizes it as almost like a gift from God to be allowed to build a temple, mm -hmm. because this was the model that God had laid out. Um, but then the, uh, at the same time, you get this, this picture that, like, so it's a picture of what's to come, but at the same time, it is specifically for here. You know, it's like the portion we're reading today, I think Morgan was reading it, um, that, like, Messiah would not be a priest here. We have priests here, and their job is different. And he doesn't do that. But the job that he does is ultimately greater, but it's not here. It doesn't replace what's here. It runs parallel in its own way. And that's kind of what you get. Some of these things actually did the that's that's one of the maybe shocking things about the entire thing. When you read the accounts in the, in in, uh, in First and Second Samuel, it's like, wow! It's like what happened to it all. Hmm. Um, the idea that you know the gold obviously is is absence of decay ever. Right. I mean, it will always be exactly as it is. It doesn't tarnish. It doesn't corrupt. It's why it's the supreme. Absolutely the case, you know. I mean, we, you know, so you, you're going to find, of liberty. Of, you know, anything that's bronze, that is the Hebrew word for copper, is going to decay, and it's not going to last long. We're talking about, you know, less than a thousand years, it will essentially be gone. I mean, they find bronze stuff now, but it's it's almost gone. Mm. So, and silver, silver is is for the most part, it's going to last a long time, and not like gold. All of the weaving was gone by the time that they were in the tabernacle. In in Shiloh, it was it was not the same stuff. Right. It was gone. Mm -hmm. 
So the embroidery, all that stuff, had rock. decayed. They're having to make new. No question, it was cool places. That's why the tabernacle in Shiloh was probably made of wood, and not actually the fabric that's described here. Huh. So the ark, you know, the ark and its cover are preserved. You know, the uh, it's basically the furniture inside. The bronze yeah. altar. I mean, it was almost 500 years. The bronze altar may or may not have been there at Shiloh. Uh, it certainly wasn't in Solomon's uh, yeah, right. Maybe the green altar yeah, at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the table of showbread, it was covered with gold. The question is whether that occasion could last that long. Hmm. And then, you know, the, the, the notion that, well, it was supernaturally preserved, which is probably what Temple Institute would kind of go along with if they were trying to push this thing. Uh, <laughs> the people were supernaturally preserved. Aaron didn't live forever. He died. He was the high priest. He was, he was the one. And he died. His sons died. We see it. So the notion that it's it's uh, somehow because it's sacred, as as Janet pointed out, it was a it was perfect at the time that it was created to represent what was eternal, but it wasn't eternal. Hmm. Which, quite frankly, is important. It is. There's only one. Exactly right. Eternal. It's it's not eternal. Well, because it wasn't intended to be. God intended for us to. Transition. That's right. Different. Run with it. Last week, uh, Kiti saw um, we get the appointment with Solomon and Aholia, uh 31, Ezekiel and uh, Exodus 31. God spoke to Moses saying, See, so you have appointed to work for me with Solomon, the son of Uri, the son of Hu, the tribe of Yehuda, and I've also given him Aholia. This is what they're going to do. They're going to build everything. And oh, by the way, you should speak to the children of Israel and say, you got to keep the Sabbath. Anyway, after we're done talking about the Sabbath, we go through everything that, got, that has to get built. And then we start back with the Sabbath again. At the beginning of our portion, Moshe caused the whole community of the children of Israel to assemble on the day after Yom Kippur and said to them, these are the things that God has commanded to be done. You've got to keep the Sabbath. And anyone who doesn't will be put to death. So you get the bookends around that. And uh, whether you agree with the 39 Melachot or not, that's why the Sabbath laws that the Orthodox keep are all about what it takes to build the tabernacle. If you can't tear, if you if you have to tear stuff to make the tabernacle, then you can't tear on the Sabbath. If you've got to grind stuff, then you can't grind coffee beans. If you can't, if you cut stuff, then you can't cut on the Sabbath. We don't need to argue about whether or not that's legitimate or not, but that's surely that's the reason where, for it. from where it comes. Mm -hmm. And there it is. So it, there's not a lot of other reasons why I can think of that the Sabbath would be so preeminent here other than to stop them from building what took time to build on the Sabbath. Well, at the very least, it definitely seems to be saying that just because it's good work doesn't mean that it sure. trumps the Sabbath. Yeah. But also there is that, that balance, I think, about the, I was saying earlier, the idea of um, not losing track of what you're doing, why you're doing it. I think one of the things that's so easy to do whenever you're doing work, I mean, I think the classic example is, of course, the, the pastor who does an excellent job leading his congregation 
that ends up having you know the affair with the secretary or raises his children so poorly that they don't even know who God is right. and it's like kind of lost the vision along the way was doing good work but forgot why he was doing it um, and it's kind of almost feels like that here it's like God starts at the beginning it's like let's not let's not lose track here we're building this tabernacle but the reason we're building it is so that I can dwell among you that means we start with Shabbat because that's part of that process. You have got to be... And it's the picture when we will ultimately, right. eternally dwell. Not, not to negate the practicality of the Shabbat in, in its bookends, but I think its primary purpose and where it's found here is exactly that. The tabernacle is about a permanent dwelling where God can, the infinite can dwell in the finite. And the Shabbat is about a perfect dwelling where the infinite can dwell within the finite. So today we see it as a finite time. Between this candle, this these two candles, and, and this one candle, this is this is a this is a this is a, uh, a place, but it's not eternal. And in the same way, this is a thing that's going to decay, the temple, the tabernacle, but it's not eternal. The eternal is what's to come, mm -hmm. and it's and the two together are giving us somehow giving us this uh, almost a metaphysical concept of what the tabernacle temple and what the Shabbat are really about. And it's far beyond the, pra the, the practical and the here and now. It's far beyond that. It's all right. about the future. And as Joshua said, if that's where you stop, you know, look, there's the tabernacle where we don't need anything yeah. else. You missed, you missed, missed the point. You missed it. And in the same way, if, it's, if Shabbat is just about, well, we did that this week, mm -hmm. then we missed it. We completely missed the point. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value, but it's not the same. Which is why the writer of Hebrews makes such a big deal about the Shabbat. Not just in the tab tabernacle, but he makes a big deal about the Shabbat. He got the idea that two are intertwined yeah. as well. And he says, this is a picture of the eternal. Mm -hmm. The Shabbat is, the Sabbath. Right. right. And so how exciting is it that you can you know, bring that here? I mean, that's the thing. You can read the tabernacle stuff, and none of it applies today. We can't do any of that. We're not allowed to. But the Shabbat element at the beginning is what we're doing right now, where we are making this tabernacle in time That's right. for, for Hashem. Hesh, um, Heschel's book is just incredible. And, and, it is. And it's just a tiny that, little book. And making that, I mean, it's so few words even. Mm -hmm. just, yeah. it's, it is almost, you know, outside of scripture, it's almost, it does it better than anything else ever could. Yeah. If you want to borrow that book, it's on. It's not you a need to leave, you need to leave your left shoe. So I get it back. But you have to you have to park your your, yeah, uh, park your distractions car. away for a little bit because yeah. you just like you have to read it again. It's like really I read that first chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times. Mind bend. Mind bend. I gotta start over. Couldn't get better than that one. Yeah. No, I, seriously, I read the whole book, exactly but I, I restarted that book at least three times oh, yeah. the first time. It's heavy. Because it's because you because you read it and you're just like Never thought anything was possible. Like Wait, that. I, it's not a place. It's a time. And, and as non-Jews, we're not raised to think of what we see and what we experience now as being a true shadow. Yes. Of what will be, and I think if there's anything that we miss in normal Christendom growing up, and and the and the Jews get it, at least the Orthodox. You know, obviously not their form, but they they get sooner or later there is a time when Messiah comes. You know, we're moving towards what we've been taught about, and that's 
Well, I mean, Extraordinary. Western civilization treats uh, analogies and metaphors as helpful, right. but not fundamental. Mm. And Jesus treats them as fundamental, that they are, that, that they have, they the have texture, yeah. that they're the same as the substance. It's like, what? That's impossible. Well, that's what exactly how Heschel starts his book. That's right. Exactly. So it's like, this is not possible that something is, is invisible, it's time, it's fleeting, has physical properties, which is what he's trying to get. In addition, uh, Rabbi David Foreman had a really interesting point about the Sabbath that I guess I'd never really thought about. But So he walked through in this class that he was doing about the meaning of life. Part of what came out of that was taking a look at the two stories of creation. And the first story of creation ends with the Sabbath. That whole man, you know, the, breaking it up into two men, according to Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, that, that man is the one that's been creating all along. And then the Sabbath is the day. And I guess I'd never... You think so often about resting instead of, as Rabbi David Foreman put it, enjoying the creation. Mm -hmm. So you work throughout the six days and then you just enjoy the creation. And I thought about that because the Sabbath, everything's doubled. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's, it's the opposite of what you do with your life. You know, you gather all this food, you gather double before Shabbat and then you don't gather anything on Shabbat. But it's always like, there's usually a lot, like there's more sacrifices on Shabbat because that's like the enjoyment of the thing that you've been building up towards the whole the whole week. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was an interesting take on on the Shabbat as well as Heschel's. Yeah, yeah I was uh, getting excited about it. Um, don't want to spend all of our time here in the portion, although we're happy to do more. Um, any other comments, thoughts? Are you leaving the portion? I'm not necessarily leaving the portion. I'm opening it up to... Um, if anybody else has anything else they want to jump into, and then we'll go to the Haftar. Well, just the end of this portion, and everybody here knows this, but just the end of this portion, how Shikri Day ends, is how uh, Vayikra has to begin. Mm -hmm. And if you don't keep the two together, as most of us, mm -hmm. um, most of Christendom doesn't keep it together, you, both are completely confusing. Miss, we don't need a tabernacle. You miss the second. We absolutely don't need a tabernacle. Uh, Unless you read the first part of Leviticus and go, whoa, how much do we need a tabernacle? How much do we need a temple? Mm -hmm. If we don't need a tabernacle or a temple, then we don't need Messiah. And and in the same regard, if you see the offerings and just the offerings, and you don't understand the significance of the tabernacle, then you're going to miss the whole thing with Messiah in that regard as well. It's, mm -hmm. like, it's like his sacrifice is for nothing. It's for nothing. Or it can... The sacrifice of these animals can be replaced with the sacrifice of a man. Which that's right. Which is so. Why would you want to go back? And it's to been done once. And it's been done once. We don't need we're to done. do it again. Or well, we would all agree with that. But wait, it has a. It, the correlation is absolutely still there. You no. cannot dwell. You cannot dwell in the presence of the Almighty without. He can't dwell with he us. Can't dwell with us. Yeah. He can't dwell with us without the offering. That's right. right. But then you have to also keep in mind that the, the distance between the difference between them because. The physical offering, so we can talk about the physical tabernacle, is about meeting with God here in this time and space. Messiah's offering in the heavenly tabernacle is about meeting with God on a much more cosmic level. and But him being with us as well, and that's the point. Right, but at the same time, like thinking about the it, the like, world to come that, like, can't happen and us dwell with him then unless that sacrifice of Messiah had been done. Well, and I think it even goes beyond that, even not just the world to come in the future, but even like now. now. I mean, this idea, if you read through um, a lot of the Midrash and talking about the people of Israel, God basically is like, I, they're not worthy of being my people. 
So the only hope they have is that I'm going to set aside the righteous for them. Otherwise, they have no shot. They are, they're, they, they've screwed up more than enough, and our relationship is over. But thankfully for them, you know, and we get this imagery also, of course, with Moses in the, in the Torah, this idea that someone can stand in the gap, someone can represent, and he alone at, acts as a form of offering, so to speak, that brings the people close to God, mm -hmm. ultimately Yeshua being the, the, fin the final and complete offering there. But we have to differentiate between them. Otherwise, if you, if you somehow, ironically enough, if you say that Yeshua can replace the offerings, well, it's like an equal sign goes in two directions. You don't get it. We could actually argue that sheep and goats could replace Messiah. Well, That's right. completely irrelevant. Right, or people have a problem with that. Right, so the idea is they can't be equal. They have to be something different. Which is why in our in our reading today, in the apostolic reading, so was that uh, uh, eight and nine, right? Mm -hmm. he, he he makes it clear. Wait a second, you know you you've got these offerings here. He he would not be a priest if he were here. Different temple system, different priesthood. Right, but the the just like modern uh, believers on the Christian side of the fence don't understand the purpose of the offering in the tabernacle. Judaism doesn't understand the offerings either. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, except for the Midrash in, in fainting terms, I've never read any classical Jewish writings that understand the real purpose of the offerings as they relate to the temple. And Lives of the Jew in the earth. Exactly. Um, and and as, as wonderful it is that people want to build a temple, they don't really understand, and I'm not trying to be arrogant about it, but they really don't understand why it's important. But the writer of Hebrews does, and that's what I'm saying. If if the two sides can be brought together and have their understand, so that Christendom has a pretty good understanding of the importance of Messiah, not just as a person, but also as a one who stands Final in the gap, fix. which Judaism also understands, mm -hmm. but doesn't understand why, and as it relates to God dwelling with us, in the same regard, Judaism has a wonderful understanding of the tabernacle and its importance to God dwelling among us, and yet doesn't understand and really does not make the complete jump, the leap, to how the offerings make it possible. They, they approach it at a surface level, but they don't approach it in the detail that we can understand when we read the end of Kukidei and the beginning of, of Vayikra. Mm -hmm. Because they, they go together in Hebrews, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to show how they go together. That's what I was going to say about the book of Hebrews. I don't think we wouldn't know. Well, we wouldn't know anyway. I mean, we're not. We're, we're no better we than anybody that. else. We, we wouldn't know think. anything. But the point is, it's been revealed to us mm -hmm. with the help of the apostolic scriptures. Mm -hmm. And and unfortunately, those who just stick in the apostolic scriptures don't get the, the full import of what they're reading. They don't get the background. They don't get the background. It's not just the background. They don't really they understand. Don't the it's sufficient to understand the importance of Messiah, but not sufficient to understand how it really works. And in the same regard, having only the Torah. As wonderful as it is, that foundation, it, it would take a miracle. And I'm not saying that no one has, but I haven't read it. It would be a miracle for them to make the leap that the writer of Hebrews does. Like, what? It's exactly what it's all about. God wants to dwell among us, but he has to make sure that where he dwells among us or who he dwells among us in is, is sufficient for us not to die. Yeah. Cohen Aloro gets it. Hmm? Cohen Aloro gets it. But he gets it only because he's read the apostolic scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's, he's orthodox, steeped in Jewish, you know, but he gets it. 
That, I mean, as wonderful as, as all Midrash is, well, not Midrash, but all the commentary is about, task, about the offerings and everything, they never make this leap to the end of Pikudeh, or the beginning of Vayikra. They never make the leap. They never make the mm-hmm. real connection. Mm-hmm. That's the rabbi who uh, stands with Optimus. Rabbi One of the things that's kind of cool, I'm sorry, did you raise your hand? You got to no. barely speak English? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was it was, it was lost after five years. That was, <laughs> that was, that was hard work as an audience. It was hard work, yeah. But it was worth it. Um, one of the things... Mr. <laughs> everything you just said there, that, thank you so much. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yes. <laughs> so minutes, enlightening. 30 minutes later. Thank you. Wow, yeah. And again? Could you repeat that? <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things that's kind of funny about, uh, about that, we're talking about Hebrews, and of course one of the issues we run into there's a lot of misunderstanding of Hebrews and this thinking that somehow Hebrews, and well, Paul as well, is that somehow contradicting and, and overturning the, the Torah. We've been talking in Zadi class about how some of these passages really aren't, in fact, they didn't even think they were saying that. We're not really sure why we think that they're saying that. But then also, I think it's kind of interesting that if you get into the book of Ezekiel, the sages actually have a problem. The book of Ezekiel doesn't exactly line up with everything we're reading everywhere else. And uh, looking at Rashi's commentary this week on our Haftar portion, uh, Rashi kind of goes out of his way to say, so we're not exactly sure what's going on here. I don't really know why this offering is not the same as what it is in Leviticus or Numbers. And in fact, the commentary goes so far as to say that there were some people who thought maybe Ezekiel shouldn't be in the canon because it's true. a little confusing. It's if, you're, if you're reading the Gutnik, the Rashi script goes bananas Aww. when you start reading that. <laughs> to word. fill in the blanks. Yeah. But what's so cool about that, this is what I thought was so beautiful. And so Rashi, in this regard particularly, Rashi's my hero. Only because I love the fact that he doesn't get scared by the things that don't make sense. Because one of the things that always has bo- has, is, is bothersome is, and both sides do this, you know, and Christianity doesn't want to read parts of the Torah because they don't understand it, and they don't really want, want to feel comfortable with why are we talking about making offerings in the in you know Killing the idea of Messiah? That can't be okay. So when is it going to pretend like it never happened? We're going to totally allegorize the whole thing, and it's complete nonsense. And then the um, on the flip side of that, you know, a lot of messianics they get scared. It's like, well, Paul was confusing, and so I can't read Paul anymore. In fact, you know, let's just go ahead and cut Hebrews out of the Bible because it's just too hard to understand. Rashi doesn't do that. Rashi looks at this and goes painstakingly through, and he's like. Well, the reason why this, you know, he's offering up an entire pin of oil versus, you know, just the amount, one quarter or whatever it's supposed to be in numbers is because, of course, the olives at that point, they're really kind of lame, and he needed to have so much more to get the pure olive oil that was required to match the, 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 the quality of what they had before. So it took a whole hen when you really only need a third. And, you know, he's looking at the, the, the he's, he's going through all the stuff, and he's like, in fact, this, this one, he's offering only one animal instead of two. Because they didn't have to. So he can only offer one. So this is proof that teaches us that at least doing some of the mitzvah is better than doing none. And it's like he's going through the whole thing and it's like, okay, even if that's not true, I appreciate the effort. Like, he didn't just dismiss it. He said, how can I make this fit with the Torah? Rather than make the Torah fit this, obviously Ezekiel has a new Torah and we're throwing all that out. Um, Rashi says, well, the Torah is the foundation. We have to start there. Let's go to Ezekiel. Let's see how we can somehow weld them and we don't know that. There's one comment that was hilarious. They're like, yeah, so-and-so of so-and-so 
he used to sit in his attic all day and you know ponder the mysteries of the universe. And of course, he was able to explain all of this to us, but he died, and we unfortunately we don't remember what he said. So you know, it's, it's like you know, like his, his, I can't remember the exact description of it all, but they were like basically like, well, he lost that, and it's yeah. such a, it's a shame, isn't it? It's a shame. It's gone now. We can't we can't remember what he said. There is an explanation. But there is an explanation. iPhone. We right. lost that. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We only put it on VHS. That was a mistake. We know that now. Um, but the uh, the point though is that um, is that is that they VHS tried. This is a tape system from the past, <laughs> <laughs> which was ruined by going to a magnetic system. Obviously, uh, unfortunately, what we're going to end up running into is that my son will have no idea what these things are. They won't even know what tapes and CDs Daddy, are. What's a CD? They'll it's like, never uh, know blowing through the Nintendo system. Uh, yeah, right. Oh man. Anyway, the lessons you learn having to do things manually yourself. But anyway, the point is that um, that the. Uh, the point of that I'm trying to get at is that they weren't afraid by the conundrums, some of the contradictions. And I think that's such a beautiful thing because as we delve into Paul and delve into Hebrews, it's so easy to get scared and be like, I think that sounds contrary to what we read somewhere else. How does that work? And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't get it. At the same time, I think that it's, it's, it's a good thing, it's a, it's a quality thing to look at the, the overall picture and be like, if 95% of what Paul says lines up exactly with the Torah, and we know the kind of guy that he was, he's not going to be out there saying, to, to throw this out, why would we freak out about four verses in this entire book that may say something contradictory? We probably don't understand them, or let's spend more time trying to figure out how they mesh together. Amen. The tendency to strong arm it and say can't be part of the Bible, or see there's a problem with the Bible, right. and walk back, walk away from it is is the the tendency with the world, with the church, like you said, they, they just don't even want to read it because <laughs> somebody's going to ask them, well how come this doesn't match up, and, and it's a it's a big problem, but I I think that embrace the controversy. Yeah, I mean I, I think the way that the Jewish mentality is. Hey, you know what? You told me to do this. That part I get. I'm doing it. Right. You know, I don't have to understand it to do it. I just need to be obedient. Mm -hmm. And should he choose to enlighten me, Baruch Hashem. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't, I'll ask him when he gets here. Right. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. So. And, and that's one of the beauties about, like I said, I love this element of Rashi. That Rashi, rather than running away from the controversy, he intentionally spends pages worth of commentary on it. And you know, and the thing is, it's just, it's a mistake, I think, to think that somehow the controversy only exists between the Torah and a prophet, or between the Torah and Paul. The reality is that the controversy exists within the Torah. Sure. Why does it say? Why does when when Moses gives the Ten Commandments here, he quotes himself and misquotes himself over here? You know, and and that you know, it was the Ishmaelites or was it the the Midianites that took Joseph and so yes. forth and so on? Yes, and that's the thing. It's the beauty of it is instead of I, remember, I guess I think I made this example before is. You know, the, as you mentioned, the, the pagans that the, out there in the world, they look at this and they go, this is proof it's not true. Or or they try to, like, break it into pieces to try to make it explain itself. Well, you know, obviously we had four different writers wrote Genesis, and this is writer number one, this is writer number two, and this, you know, obviously this one was female. I always thought that was funny. But anyway, the point is that, like, they, they, they instead of, not only, rather than explaining it, they actually, they miss everything that's there. True. And the sages, by delving into it, Look at it much more closely. I see the soft seats are necessary. Mm. I love you from here. 
um, that, the, um, that, that by delving into it, the sages are saying, God made this contradict or appear to contradict on purpose. I believe this was not a mistake. I believe this is a red flag saying you need to spend more time right here. Sure. So the beauty about it, like as we're looking at Ezekiel, is that like by like Rashi looking at this portion and saying, that's only half the animals. Why are we doing only half the animals? He gets this concept that maybe if you can't do the whole mitzvah, do what you can do. And that's better than nothing. So now we have this great principle you can apply to the rest of life because he spent more time rather than freaking out and being like, oh, we can put that away. Don't read that anymore. But more importantly, Rashi did not become an unbeliever. Right. In the part that was difficult for him. As we see some in Messianic circles, right. they become unbelievers mm-hmm. because they can't deal. Ironically, right. they can't follow Rashi's example. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and it's very, very sad because, uh, because what they're going to discover is eventually they'll discover, unfortunately what many of them discover, is that the inconsistencies in the part they've chosen to believe will cause them to continue down the road of unbelief. Right. Because in the end of the day, you can't trust man. You can't. You have to believe that this came from God, and that's enough. Well, we've seen that. We've seen that just with the young men in the community. You know, trying to prove Yeshua is the Messiah. And we, we have seen, and many of us are drawn to this life because of the many, 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 many ways that Yeshua can be seen in so many of these various things. And if you start from a premise that the sages have it right and cannot be contradicted, if you start with the wrong premise, then you're going to end up with the wrong conclusion. So therefore, we you know here's here's what Maimonides says about Messiah. Messiah. Oh, it doesn't line up. Well, that's the wrong guy. It doesn't line up with Rashi. Okay, so Maimonides knew everything. Right. We're missing. And there's a there's a problem. We're there. realigning the, the the foundation. Yeah. And that's exactly. And, and that's exactly. And, and it, unfortunately, I think for us and for a community, we were not quick enough to say, moron, stop. Yes. Right. There. Let's look at these pieces here and see, you you set yourself up for failure, and you're going to end up here. And 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 the only way you're going to come back. Is if you choose, like you were just saying, to to question at some point something that the sages or or the writers have said. But more you willing well, to question. I mean, there's no questioning. Very questioning is valuable. It's healthy. But it's more than questioning. That's but what the Talmud is about. But we need to, if we're gonna if we're gonna question anything, the first thing we should question is ourselves. Right. And my own ability to be discriminating. Look, I mean, I can, everybody can sit down and look at a fish and go, okay, eat this part, don't eat this part. You know, so spit this part out. You know, this is not going to be helpful. You know, a little baby can figure out pretty right away that this doesn't go this down. This hurts. Yeah. It out, right? I mean, everybody can figure that out. Unfortunately, what we do is we bring when we come into scripture, we start and it, all things spiritual. We start treating all parts of the fish as equal, and the Bible is the meat. Everything else, including my approach to it, is the bones. And I gotta be a, I gotta be willing to pick out the meat from mm-hmm. the bones. And mm-hmm. if someone says something really good about the Bible, that's meat. That's good. That's awesome. Absolutely, but I got to be smart enough—not smart enough. I have to be humble enough to remember that they may actually have be, be offering me bones, and I need to—I need to continue to examine. Examining is the whole point. God wants us to ask these questions because it's where we find truth. The deeper we dig, if we just read it from cover to cover, that's it. I got it. No problem. Well, it's not—it's not that easy. It's not supposed to be that easy. 
Right. We, we looked, I think just last week in the men's class, it's like, so this ecclesia thing got turned into a church. How did that happen? Right? Didn't know the difference between bones and meat. Hello, yeah. To, you know? You know, and most likely very humble men. Not to, not to, not to impugn that, because we, all, we shall also approach it humbly. But the point here is we can be confused. We yeah. can be confused. And if we're taking anything from anybody else, including ourselves, we can be confused. We ought to be humble enough to say, all I can trust is what I read. Yeah. That's it. And even when you read it, if you're reading it in English, as, you, may pointed have, out, may have to question that as, as well. you pointed out in Hebrews, son of a gun. Maybe there was just a slight bias if we turned everything that was in present tense to the past tense. Hello? Study requires faith. And the faith is that God will help me. That he will illuminate because otherwise I will walk down the wrong path That's every right. time. That's right. And that ultimately that, that God will preserve his own truth well enough. They're not the most important That's the point. That's exactly the point. It's that God will preserve it. Because that's the academic approach. The academic approach says if I study deep enough, if I spend enough time on it, I can be sure. Right. And our approach to Scripture was I can't be sure. The only way it's going to happen is if God helps me. The illumination sure must if, come from above. Right, exactly. So who's the many, in the, many in the ancient church actually did understand that. You know, even some of those that we followed astray, they did get that. Unfortunately, as time has gone on and there's more of us, <laughs> that's where the danger is. <laughs> we can find new ways to get things new wrong. New ways to that's get things right. That's, kind of, so that's kind of what we talked about on Tuesday night as well, about like the acquiring through tedious study of the, the Holy Spirit. Right. The Absolutely. idea is like you keep right. digging, keep digging, keep digging, maybe not even knowing what you're digging exactly. for until God helps. Right. You know, But it's exactly. that effort that you put in that shows God I'm. I want to know. I, I'm. I'm hungry for what this means or, or the answer here. And and we the illumination has some has been given to us in the apostolic writings. Mm -hmm. As the Master made it clear that if we seek Him, we will find. If we turn towards the light, He will grant that Amen. light. Amen. Lacks wisdom. May we continue to study. Yes. In lacks wisdom, he can ask. That's right. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that idea. And then proving it, as you were talking about earlier, by doing something. Um, That's next week's homework. <laughs> there we go. Um, so Ezekiel, we've got the prince, we've got the gates coming in and out. Um, thought it was kind of cool that apparently if the prince is offering a peace offering voluntarily, he gets to go through the special Shabbat gate. Um, they, they, the Rashi commentary points out that the reason why it's immediately closed thereafter is this gate is only for um, the prince to use primarily because he apparently he's the only one who doesn't have to work. So everybody else has got normal lives. They can't be going in and out of this gate. They're, so they're set aside for the things that the Shabbat gate is um, only used on Shabbat when everyone else is free and available, so to speak. I thought it was weird, and I have to say this was kind of struck me as odd, but some of the interpretations about this period, I've always thought the prince stories line up with the Messianic age, which I assume is true. It makes the most sense to the temple and so forth. Things don't seem quite as rosy as I expected. You know, no, I kind of... There's conflict. Everything seems well, like... But we read in Revelation that he rules with a rod of iron right. during that time. Yes, see, I guess, I guess I was thinking that, rosy that That's when, exactly when right. Messiah is reigning on earth, I kind of imagined that, like, you know, all of us can fly and, you know, money will grow on trees. <laughs> and that's basically the way it's going to work. You and have to work. When it, that, that's exactly. In fact, Rashi's commentary about the animals is almost implying that they don't have quite enough. Yeah. That, like, the idea that somehow this is going to be this 
perfect utopia. It's almost more like this is going to be a spiritual utopia, but lest we get confused and think this is the world to come, it's not going to be um, as resourceful as that. And so this idea, like, these people, they still have to go to work. The prince, he doesn't have to go to work. But the prince has to, like, make sure he doesn't take their inheritance because that's their stuff. And he can give it to people, but only for a little while because that's the Jubilee deal. And, you know, he's ultimately he's going to go to his sons. And it's like, there's a finite amount. And I guess thinking about it just kind of got me thinking us a little bit different. Like, so we're looking forward to the time of Messiah. It's not because everything's going to be easy. It's because Messiah's going to be here. Right. So as I read it, my, my favorite part is the north-south deal, right? Yeah. So you came in this way, you're going out that way. And I just picture a major airport <laughs> and massive amounts of people. They're commanded. If we don't go up, we don't get any rain. We've got to go up. So they go up, and like you come in this way, you're going right out that way. No passport, no problem. Everybody on the right side. That's it. Right go, side. go, 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 go. You're right. It, it's, it speaks of throngs of people, right. which is decidedly different than the previous two temples. The previous two temples were filled with the people of God, but only the people of God. True. Where here, apparently, You've got all kinds of people coming up because they've been commanded that they must come up. And we're going to open these doors. We're going to open those doors. Don't you dare try to come in this way and come back that way. It's not going to work. We can't have that. You'll get trampled to death. Forget it. Just come up here. Do your gift. That kind of deal. So I see multitudes of people, unhappiness, people that maybe don't want to be there, and a time of angst. And I think if you put all the scriptures together, you see that. That's that's why we've got that rod of iron. So those that believe that in the millennial reign, it's nothing but peaches and cream and Christians and, and you know, that's it. You, you miss the fact that those that happen to walk into that millennial reign with bodies like we have today are going to have kids. It's a thousand years. They're going to yeah. have kids. And when they have those kids, those kids are not they may be born into the kingdom but not the kingdom right so right. you've got that you've got you've got issues that but, are going to go on and people Isaiah, are going to be, people are going to be sick even in revelation talks about the trees along the river for healing are going and to, the fruit are for the healing of the nations well you don't need leaves for healing people if people aren't being sick well and isaiah also gets this idea he talks about you know a, a, a wicked person will die at 100 years old right. and will seem young exactly so it's like the world is better, better. but it's not perfect right and i think well, as you it's not perfect till we get to the world to come right right but i think it's just fascinating a new earth. and it's right. just a fascinating thought i never really no more you know it's like there it's a spiritual it's a place of no spiritual harmony it's a place for the animals you know the lion lays down with the lamb and so forth and so on so it's like this messianic reign seems to be really um, stable really peaceful but it's not perfect and thinking about that is just different well I, I don't know I wouldn't call it peaceful lion lying down with the lamb and all that I think is the world to come Yes, it might be. Don't let your kids play with cobras and messianic and all of that. That's not going to work. I mean, let's let's face it. What finishes? What culminates the end of that messianic reign? A massive, you know, battle. Right. Right. They just get fed up and they come against the Holy One. Then. Then everything. No heaven, new earth. They'll think it's like Independence Day, the movie, and they're wrong. Right. They're wrong. Yes. Well, it kind of reminds me of the end of Joshua's time into the time of the judges. 
that you had this generation, the, the old generation had died off, that mm -hmm. had sinned in the, in the wilderness, and then you've got this generation, that, that, generation. that Joshua was leading that seemed to be really godly and, and understood. Except and, and Yeah, except had I. But, um, and then you've got this whole generation that you see in the time of the judges that had grown up. Forgot. That knew nothing. <laughs> they they did what's right in their own eyes. And did what was right in their own eyes. Right. And so then you have all kinds of crazy things happening. And so I see that, in my view, the beginning of the millennial time is going to be beautiful and wonderful and, and a new thing that we hadn't seen. But as time goes on and as people... We'll say we need a king. And then we come to the end of time where they're willing to rise up right. against mm -hmm. the Messiah. That's a, that's Which right. is interesting because another thing I hadn't thought about before, you know, because so the time of the, the prince we're talking about, maybe they don't have as much all the time. Um, one of the things is, of course, in the, in the prophets, it does talk a lot about God providing blessing to the people of Israel, um, physical, material, resourceful blessings. And it, it almost, I hadn't really thought about it, what we're talking about right now. It's interesting that it's a contract. Like, it's not, a, it's not, it's special. That God says, and the grain, and the, all this stuff, I'll bless you, and I'll, all these things coming in, and under his own fig tree, and whatever else. But it's like, it's, it's specific, it seems, to the land of Israel. It's like, the people of God are going to experience these blessings um, which may or may not be all the time, or maybe they'll be growing or whatever, but it's like, it's not so much this idea that like the entire world is going to be That's true. perfect and whole. I mean, we're coming out of the previous it stage. It can't be if we know that the people in Egypt won't get any rain. Right. Mm. So obviously it's not always great. Right. Um, so it's just such an interesting thought to think about it differently and realize this is not the end goal. That this is the next step. But we're still looking forward to it because we want Messiah to be here because Amen. ultimately that's, that's the why we're really here. But then, of course, we look forward to the, land, the world to come when everything will be complete. I'm scared now. No, don't be scared. One of the things I wanted to touch on real fast that was really kind of cool. So the, the Moftir, I know we're getting towards the end here. The Moftir, of course, is one we've already done. It's from Pesach and the offerings. And what the offering is and what we should be getting and all that stuff. And uh, from Exodus chapter 12. And one of the things that's really cool about this little portion um, is uh, there's a couple different things that, uh, that, that the Rashi script points out. And one of the ones I thought was really great was they talk about you shall safeguard the matzot. And what's funny about that is that the word matzot and the way that it's spelled, with like a little bit of creativity, you get mitzvot. Like it's very similar because of like the fact that like the, the vav in mitzvah is a, is the, is a v sound, but it, it's the same letter for matzot, because right. it's an O sound. Um, and so they're, they're talking about this idea that like you have to, um, Judaism teaches, I'm not saying it's the correct thing, but this is where they get this from, that to safeguard the matzot is because you have to watch how much time it doesn't rise by itself. If you let it sit out for too long, it'll rise, and then it's no longer matzah, now it's bread. So in the, um, so their idea was in the same way you have to watch over the mitzvot, because if you, if you delay too long, if you wait, and, and don't do the mitzvah right away or don't do it the right way, then it will it will like leaven itself. It will become it will no longer be a mitzvah. And now it's a, now it becomes a problem. And it's so funny because it reminds me so much of Paul, who goes back to Pesach and pulls out matzah and leaven as symbols for keeping the mitzvot. He he has the same like analogy, and I thought it was so funny. It's like I guess they're they're reading the same people. Um, and uh, you know, reading the same text anyway, and it's like they're getting these the same the same concept. All heard the same, so. But we get the same. We actually get that imagery in this week's portion because the leaders 
are the the the, the, the sages ask the question, why is it that the, the gemstones are listed last or almost last? And it makes no sense because I mean the leaders bring them, so that's like it's a big honor. These are the most expensive items individually, and um, and yet they mentioned at the bottom. And the tradition holds that the reason is because the, the leaders made the mistake of waiting. They wanted to see what everybody else would bring, and they would fill in the gaps when they're left over, rather than being so eager to bring their offering it's that they example. just yeah set an example. They get in front, and I think it's is it for S as a man who eventually has to lead his well, already has to lead a family, will be leading a son. Um, it's a it's a challenge because sometimes you do want to just sit back and let you know let things happen. But you have to be um, taking the initiative. You have to be the leader, and so it's the leader. The great, the good story is that we'll find later in Numbers that the leaders learn the lesson, and when it comes to the actual anointing and setting up of the tabernacle, there they bring trucks of stuff, so many different things. It's like everyone is the same, and that's the beauty of it. They all end up bringing the same thing by accident. But God is so touched by rather than dumping them, he he puts them at the end of the list of stuff. Almost as like a ding. Like, come on, guys. You were last. So when they bring the exact same thing, we have the longest non-psalm in the entire Bible because God painstakingly lists every, every single, single item, and it's all exactly the same. Because to God, it was so beautiful that these men had, had taken upon themselves that, that initiative and that desire and, and had poured out their offering that he needed to enumerate it specifically because each one was tremendous mm -hmm. so yeah maybe not let our wits go rise not just son but sons and daughters oh right yes eventually sons and daughters mm -hmm. we'll take that <laughs> take that blessing from your mouth to god's <laughs> ears two days from now of course we'll have uh, a rosh kodesh which is really, or three days from now right but that's uh, that's always it's really exciting to see how rosh kodesh is laid out in scripture as, as such a special time because it doesn't get a lot of of uh there's not a lot of traditions around it. There's not a lot of of talk about it, but it's consistently mentioned as one of the Moedim, one of the set-aside no times for Hashem. in the church at all. Right, right, exactly. And Judaism is just Karaites, right? <laughs> well, they got that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, hunting for the moon and stuff. There yeah. are some really cool traditions in modern Judaism that deal specifically with But they're with very modern. Like, I don't feel like they're very ancient at oh, all. Oh, really? The well, Mishnah is, Mishna is full of it. And lots of passages of the importance of the <laughs> really, yeah. but like, what about stuff to do? No. Okay, that's because like, now you've got all this about like it's a woman's holiday, and so you right. you know do something special for your wife and everything, which is really interesting. But those are usually like in the, <laughs> le, le, I, they're usually like in the articles on Chabad.org. They're usually not like from a commentary specifically. Right. Was, was what I was right. getting at. But I just bring my women. Don't know why. <laughs> but we have, yeah, we have the, we, we do have Don't the need new laundry. Don't need new clothes. <laughs> the, all the, the they have like, prayers and things, though, to try to, like, emphasize that this is special. Yes. In that way. And, and that, that's another one, too. It's like the next time you do one of these prayers is Pesach, like a huge day yeah, of the right. year. So it's just really special. And anyway, I, I love pointing out to myself and to others the verses where we have in scriptures of, like, Rosh Kodesh being right up there with, mm -hmm. with other things. And in this particular case, this gate, you know, was, was only opened on set on Sabbath and then also on Rosh Kodesh. And then, yeah, on the Rosh Kodesh. Mm -hmm. Right, because it's important. Is that Rashi asked the question, um, how, does, uh, how does God explain what the new moon looks like? Because, he, and that, this is so interesting, he points out that God keeps talking to Moses in the daytime. And he's like, well, how does he 
so Pesach is the time, because of course Pesach, um, I guess, involves twilight and night and whatever else. For whatever reason, Rashi thinks that, that the story is at that time is being that God is speaking to Moses at night. So this is like the chime when God can be like, this, like pointing at the moon right now. That's what This like. <laughs> will be the beginning of months for you. This is the new moon. That's this cool. is how we're starting out. Because like oh, okay. it does kind of look like that. I mean, yeah. It sounds like that. Yeah. This, yeah. this shall be the beginning of months. And then, of course, ultimately, it means also that it's the first month. But, mm. yes, exactly. we are starting on... Tuesday. Thank you. Day three. Day three of the week. Day three of the week. Yeah. Which sounds like it's the second day because it's Tuesday, but Tuesday. actually it's not where it comes Tuesday. from. Tuesday. Right. Tuesday. Tuesday, yes. So it's actually Get our first gods going here. here. Yeah, I know. It's a shame. <laughs> Someday we'll count them all by the Levites. That's <laughs> true. We'll all right, final comments, anyone? No, thank you for your effort. Good job. You guys. Good job. I had the easiest job here. Basically. Um, what? I in a lot of ways, you know. I just get I have to like get the get the ball rolling and then you guys can take over. I can just jump in whenever I missed, that was cool. I missed the little kids' time. I wanted Christine and Isaac to see a little kids' time, but we didn't have any kids this time. Well, we, we, we really talked to Sophia about yeah. her hair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was such a cool time tying it together. And, you know, it's really it was brief, but there was a little allusion to the gift giving. Wanting to tie it into what um, Sophia had done, which yeah. I was really sweet. It is really cool. A few close that prayer. Good Father, we thank you. We thank you for community. We thank you for. The tabernacle, we thank you for Messiah. We thank you for the word of God that you would teach us through. Father, we pray that we would continue to study, that we would look forward and hasten the coming of Messiah Yeshua. Father, that he would set up his kingdom on earth, not one that's necessarily perfect, but one in which he reigns and argues with and pushes back against the world, as we should today. Father, we pray for those days. We pray for King David to be addressed as prince because a greater king is present. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath and this memorial, this tabernacle in time that you granted to us that uh, we might meet with you. We pray for your son's soon return, Father, and that you'll bless the rest of our day. We pray these things. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach Amen. 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 Thank you very much. Thank you. Actually, we did have children present.